this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. I have all these experiences in my memory, having grown up in the church, the experiences of extreme presence of God, the moments spent at camps around altars or in a week-long conference, worshiping and praising God every day, all day. It's when God seems to heal your heart, inspire your soul, and teach your mind all at once, and you feel so close to Him, so changed, that you think everyone must be able to see the change in you so clearly, you know? Like, like everyone can just tell how different you are. Your perspective, your mindset, your place in the world all seem to shift so powerfully. And I have this, this picture in my mind of the mountaintop experiences in the Bible. I, I imagine that they are the physical representation of my camp or conference experience. I, I picture the work that it takes to get to the top, the exhaustion, the sleepless nights and long days, always looking ahead, at how much longer, how much farther, building your expectation, rehearsing the questions over and over in your mind. And when you finally get there, and get to experience the presence of God, just how powerful that must be. There are some quintessential mountaintop moments in the Bible that we're going to teach throughout this church camp sermon series, and I really hope that you get to experience God in a brand new way. And I hope that you're already anticipating what God is going to do. That's, that's what the mountaintops theme is all about hearing from God in a brand new way and the work it takes to get there. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, in week one of this church camp mountaintop series, Candace talked about how we are a vibrant church. Uh, We actually define vibrancy as being focused on being bold, colorful, lively, a little loud, but pointing towards Jesus always. So I'm going to ask that question again. Are you ready? Now, that was a vibrant answer. And in week two, Candace talked about passion because we're a passionate church. And we define passion as wanting more, more depth. More obedience, actually, and when we're more obedient to God, it gives us more mountaintops moments, which makes us more passionate. So I'm going to ask you again with passion, are you ready? Yeah. Now, now listen, um, I know sometimes, like, because I've sat in a lot of church services uh, growing up and, and working in church and being in the church ministry, whenever the pastor, like, gets me, forces me, let's be honest, twists my arm to yell louder and do more, I'm like, I don't want to do that. Like, can I just sit? You're the one who's supposed to be talking. I'm supposed to be listening, and I don't want to do that. But today, we're going to talk about being selfless, which means doing something that we might not want to do in and of ourselves, but doing it so that we can all be a part of group. So I'm going to ask you a third time, and I'm only doing this for this service. Are you ready? That's what I thought. Now, what are you ready for? Do you even know? You know, I asked you the question, but and and it's a, a big part of that video. Are you ready? And and what we're actually asking, I believe, is are you ready for a mountaintop experience? And if you're ready for a mountaintop experience, are you ready to climb the mountain? An exhausting, a uncomfortable, a 
disorienting and difficult trek. Mountain climbing is an incredible experience and opportunity to be a part of. I've had a few chances to, to hike great peaks and, and climb on some mountains and, and do that and see the amazing views throughout my life, and I love mountaintop moments. But there's just something about like being a man and, and women, maybe, maybe for you as well, when you see a mountain, you're just like, I want to conquer it. I want, to, I, want to, I want to climb it. I want to get to that peak, the summit. I want to be the highest person, and I want to do it the fastest and the best. Like When we were in, in Tanzania, our hotel overlooked a huge mountain peak. You could see it. It was clearly above treeline. The clouds would like, it was the type of mountain where the clouds would like come, and then they'd hit the mountain, and they'd go on either side every day, and it was just beautiful. And I'm like, I want to climb that thing. And I never actually had the opportunity to do that. But there's just something about mankind and humanity. We want to conquer the mountain. Mount Everest is, is that classic peak that, that we use as the ultimate mountain, the ultimate ability. Like, I, for the longest time, wanted to climb Mount Everest. So I've looked into what it would take and what it's like to climb Mount Everest. And you know, Mount Everest was discovered by Europeans, by Westerners, in 1850. 1850, they discovered Mount Everest. They had actually discovered another mountain near it that they thought was the tallest mountain. And then they saw it, and because, you know, men are men, the guy went, I think that other one's bigger. And then they spent a six-year trek to get to Mount Everest and discover and actually measure it with surveying tools and go, nope, that's the tallest mountain. And then in 1850, they let all the world know the tallest mountain on earth has been discovered. And from that moment, people are like, I'm going to climb it. I'm going to climb the tallest mountain on earth. And, and people tried and began the process of setting out expeditions and adventures to climb Mount Everest. It would take 100 years before Mount Everest was finally conquered, it was finally climbed, by Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. Edmund Hillary, that's a pretty standard name, you know, we, we, but Tenzing Norgay, it's a, it's a weird name, right? I don't know. I'm like immature, so I laugh every time I hear that name, Tenzing Norgay. Anyway, whatever, that was, it's not really a point in my message, but I couldn't help but be distracted by the ridiculousness of the name of the second man ever to climb Mount Everest. But Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay set out on this expedition. And when they, when they came back down, they said, we made it. We're the first ones to successfully summit and return alive because so many people die on Mount Everest. And, and people celebrated them and let them know all over the wor world. And it's actually considered the last piece of global news to be delivered by foot messenger. Because after that, you know, the telegram is invented and we have phones and, and people can travel. But, but after everyone heard, they said, oh, they climbed the mountain. Who got there first? because they didn't actually tell anyone who was the first one. They just said, we did it together. We've accomplished this thing. And it took years of, of press begging them and, and bugging them and harping on them. Who was the first? Who was the first? Who was the first? And then finally they said, we want this to end. And they, they said it was Edmund who was the first one to step foot on that mountaintop. But to them, why did it matter? Because they had done it together. But in actuality, Edmund Hillary was from New Zealand, and there's many great peaks and high elevations in New Zealand, but Tenzing Norgay was a Sherpa, which means he was born in, in the Nepalese region of the Himalayas, and, and he has actually a genetic advantage in mountain climbing. That The Sherpa people, because they're born and live at high elevations, are more able to survive at those low oxygen environments and climb the mountains. The Sherpa people are the reason that Westerners are still able to climb Mount Everest today. 
The, the number of Sherpas it takes just to bring one American climber without experience to the top of the mountain is staggering. They arrive there months before and they set up base camp. Then they move to camp two and they set up camp two and then they move to camp three and they set up camp three. Then they start setting guidelines and ladders. Then they start carrying oxygen tanks on their backs up the mountain. They'll literally summit and, and return multiple times so that they have the oxygen where it needs to go so that a climber doesn't need to bring their tents. They don't need to carry their extra oxygen bottles. They don't need to carry their extra food. It will all be waiting for them when they arrive. And these Sherpas work incredibly hard and do a phenomenal amount of work and put themselves at risk so that others can summit a mountain. That's selflessness. It's selflessness. They are an individual genetically advantaged to do this task and they give selflessly so that others are able to see the summit on Mount Everest. Sherpas are often not even permitted to, like, to, to spend the time on the peak. Their job is to just get other people to the mountaintop. That's selflessness. They give up the ability to enjoy that thing just so that they can serve and be a part of it. The, the Sherpa people, it's, a, it's an ethnicity, it's a people group. That word Sherpa has become so synonymous with helping someone else succeed that we use it as a term. Like, like you're a Sherpa for someone. It's like a job description. Like how many other people groups... Like, if you say American, do you think, oh, like, like okay, that's a job description. No, it, the Sherpa people have become synonymous with serving, carrying the burden, helping others succeed. You're a Sherpa. And that's the type of selflessness that I want to talk about and I think we need to strive for as a church as we look at our mountaintop story today. This series, we've been looking at individual mountaintop stories to define who we are as a church. We are a vibrant, passionate, and selfless church. That's who we are and we want to talk about how we can become more vibrant, more passionate, and today more selfless. And on week one, if you were here, Candace told the story of the mountaintop experience of Elijah, how Elijah spent time on Mount Carmel, and, and he vibrantly called out another God. And he said, your God is, is defiling and, and dirty, and our God is pure and holy and real. And he stood for a singular purpose of God, and he had a vibrant, bold call on his life that he had that mountaintop moment where God came down and consumed the sacrifice and showed up with vibrancy and life and color. And that's who we wanna be in our lives. Single-minded focus on Jesus, so we point people only to Jesus. Vibrant. Then the next week, Candace talked about the mountaintop experience of Moses. When Moses climbed Mount Sinai and encountered God, and when he was there on the mountaintop, God showed up in a way that Moses' face was transformed. The Bible says that when Moses came down off that mountain, his face shone with so much light that people could not even look at him. So he had to put a veil over his face because he was so filled with the passion and obedience of God. And he saw the people had sinned and he came down and he went, you can't live in this sin. You must be obedient to God. And he called them to obedience in passion. So we need to be more passionate. And as I was looking for a mountaintop story that personified selflessness this week, I saw a great many in the Bible, in the Old Testament. You know, there's the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham climbed up the mountain with his son, his gift from God, his only son, who was a young man at this point, and he climbs up the mountain with him, and God says, sacrifice 
your son. Give up your own son. And he walks all the way up the mountain with his son and with the wood and with the knife and they build the fire and he lays his son down, sacrificing, giving selflessly because his God instructed and he lifts the knife and then God stays his hand and provides another sacrifice instead. And I was gonna talk about the symbolism and imagery there, but I really wanted to look not at just the mountaintop story with selflessness, but I wanted to look at the most selfish, selfless character in all of scripture, the most selfless person ever to walk this earth, Jesus Christ. His selflessness is personified in the fact that he even came to earth. Anybody here ever been on a luxurious vacation? You know, you know the ones I'm talking about, the ones you see on TV and on movies, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You're sitting on the beach with a pina colada, a virgin pina colada. You're hanging out in the hammock. You know, maybe there's a bell and you, you just, there's a bellhop and you go, ding. And then they come out and they bring you another one. And you're like, oh, thank you, Jeeves. And like, like that kind of vacation, that kind of comfort. That's the lifestyle that Jesus gave up in heaven. He never once experienced pain in heaven. He never once experienced a hunger. He may have been able to enjoy food and eat, but he was never hungry. He never experienced sickness. He never experienced sorrow. He never experienced heartache. He never experienced these things because heaven was a perfect place. And then he selflessly, the Bible says, he did not, he did not value equality with God as something to be strived for or attained. So he gave up his godhood in a way and became man. He became flesh. I could not imagine choosing the weakness of our earthly flesh. He chose to embrace sickness, pain, exhaustion, tiredness, hunger. All of the issues that we face on earth, he faced and he chose that selflessly gave up his own comfort for others, the most selfless we could ever imagine. And then as he lived here on earth, he demonstrated selflessness by serving others, by healing others, by caring for others, and then facing the punishment for others, the ultimate selfless individual. So I knew I wanted to look at the life of Jesus, but then I thought, well, mountaintops, what mountaintop moment of Jesus do we want to study? There's the Sermon on the Mount where he laid out how we should behave. There's, there's when he was tempted by the enemy on the mountaintop, where the enemy taught, brought him to a high mountain. He said, you could have everything if you just bow down before me, but he selflessly decided not to. We could talk about when he wept over the city of Jerusalem from a mountain peak. He went up on a high mountain and he saw God's city and God's people, and he wept for he knew so many of them would go to hell. So many of them would not embrace him. So many of them would miss out on what God had in store for them. And he wept over the city selflessly. We could talk about the night he prayed before he was crucified. We could talk about the mountain called Golgotha where he gave his life for us. We could talk about the mountain where he ascended into heaven. All these mountaintop moments of Jesus' ministry and many more. And I thought, which mountaintop moment of Jesus' life do I want to talk about? And I remembered my favorite one the mountain of transfiguration. This is actually the first sermon I ever preached in my entire life. I was given an opportunity to preach to, to men that I really appreciate and look up to. And, and they, they said, preach on anything you want. And I said, I'd love to preach about the mountain of transfiguration. And I wrote a sermon about it. I actually remember my opening line from that sermon. You wanna hear it? It was, I've seen the sun set over an endless Atlantic ocean. And then I began to talk about the beauty of beaches and all these things, but that the mountain is the most beautiful place. And I remember that message, and I remember afterwards, a guy came up to me and said, great sermon, Jason, but the sun doesn't set over the Atlantic. And I went, 
You really walked away with something great there. Thanks for paying attention and taking notes. And then I went, and it does when you're on an island, punk, because that's where I was talking about, the island. So, like, I you know, jabbed him back for jabbing me. He's a great guy. But the mountain of transfiguration is a mountaintop moment where Jesus was completely transformed, where Jesus had this astounding, amazing, never-to-be-replicated moment that I would love to have experienced even a piece of. And as we study it today, I want you to, to picture what it would be like to have experienced that and what it would take to experience that in our lives if we could. So we're going to go to Mark 9, verse 2. Uh, if you have the FE Church app, you can go to the sermon notes. You can follow along there or open up your Bible to, to Mark 9 right now. Mark 9, verse 2. Six days later, I know I didn't get very far, but we need to pause there. And this is just an important little teaching. If you're ever reading in the Bible and you see something like then or after that time or six days later, as an educated studier of the Bible, here's what you should do. Six days later, what was six days earlier? What, where did they come from? Because we want to recognize where they came from, otherwise we won't know why they're here. And I just want to let you know, six days before this, Jesus fed 5,000 people on a mountainside. It was an amazing experience, a high watermark, like a spiritual high mountaintop moment. Imagine if, pa if Candace comes up in here and she's like, hey, Jason, you got any food? And I'm like, yeah, I got a piece of bread. And then Candace is like, here you go, and gives everyone enough food. You'd be like, whoa, our church is amazing, which it is, but you know, we're probably not going to multiply bread today. Sorry if you wanted bread. But, but that's what Jesus did, mountaintop moment. This, the disciples are like, this is amazing. Then the very next moment, when he's alone with his disciples, he says, hey, guys, I know that was awesome. I just want to let you know I'm going to be killed. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. So mountaintop moment, and then Jesus is like, kaplow, hey, I'm going to die. Mountain to valley. That's what six days earlier was. So six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Six days later, he takes three of them, not all of them. You know, he had like 70 followers, 12 disciples, and then three individuals that were like the ones he invested in the most. So he takes those three, Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain to be alone. A couple things here. A high mountain. Maybe you're picturing, you know, they went on a picnic up Devil's Den or a little round top. No, high mountain. Some biblical scholars believe the mountain they climbed up was over 9,000 feet above sea level. This is a hike. This might have been a multi-day journey up a mountain, and every step up when you're going up elevation is like three steps forward. They actually traveled a great distance to be alone, just the three of them. Here's what I'm thinking. They had a spiritual high moment, and then a spiritual low moment, and Jesus, as the ultimate pastor and shepherd, he looks around at his guys, and he says, we need a weekend retreat, guys. We're going to we're gonna go camping. Pack up your stuff. We're going camping. And he grabs his three leaders, and they go on a camping trip up the mountain, and, and they hike day after day, and they, or maybe a, a day and a night, and they get to the top. Imagine, they're tired now. They've just had spiritual high, spiritual low, now a long hike. This was a terrible business meeting, Jesus. Like, why couldn't we have just stayed by the shore? And as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, like more than meets the eye, like Optimus Prime transforming, like he is transformed. Do you guys know there were transformers in the Bible? Just saying. Verse three, 
and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. I've been thinking about this this week. What's whiter than white? I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's like dazzling white, sparkling white, Colgate white. I don't know. But then I was thinking about it. Have you guys heard of Venta Black? Anybody heard of Venta Black? It's the blackest black ever discovered. There is a black blacker than black. Did you know that? Science has discovered a black blacker than black. Again, I don't know how you do that. I know it's, it's something about carbon nanotubes that, are, that absorb so much light that it's darker than your eye can process so that it actually looks like it's distance. So it's, it's like black of black, whole black. It absorbs the light. So I think Jesus invented something like Venta White. Like this is, this is white, whiter than white. It's so white that it actually creates its own light. It's not a flashlight. We have flashlights. It's not an LED light. No, it's a color so white it creates light. I bet you one day science will create a white, whiter than white. If we can create a black, blacker than black, why can't we create a white, whiter than white? And when they create it, we'll be able to go, no, 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 you didn't invent this. It already existed. You can read about Venta White right here. Jesus is wearing clothes that, that we can't even create. He is transformed, transfigured into something new. This is amazing. Then something even more amazing happens. Remember those two characters we, we studied the past two weeks? Then Elijah and Moses appear and begin talking to Jesus. What? What just happened? Where, I thought we were camping. You, you, in, you invited friends? I didn't know I couldn't invite friends. And Jesus has, his, has these great people throughout scripture. You know, Elijah did not die. That it is believed that Moses also did not die. Both of them just walked off and didn't come back. And then they came back in this moment to be with Jesus. And they're on top of this mountain. And the disciples are observing their savior in Venta White with two other guys just... You know, shooting the breeze, talking about stuff, just discussing things. And the disciples are there experiencing this. And as I was studying this passage, I was thinking, what would it take to have that kind of mountaintop moment in my own life? And there's some lessons we can learn. If you're going through a valley, there's something ahead of you. If things are hard, climb back up. Get out of that valley. Get out of that pit. And also, you know what the disciples did? They spent some time alone with Jesus. And when they were alone with Jesus, they were ready and primed to experience something amazing. So selfless followers of Jesus will spend time alone with him. That's what the disciples did. Jesus noticed they were in a down season, that they were kind of demoralized a little bit. They felt defeated. And he said, we need to spend some time alone, guys. Let's go. Let's go spend some time, just you and I. Let's, let's get our relationship back where it needs to be. They spent time alone with Jesus. We need to be a selfless church. That means as individuals, we need to be spending time alone with Jesus. I am so grateful that you are so committed and you are here every weekend that you are here, that you are here in the seats, that you are studying, that you are worshiping, that you are taking notes, that you are corporately worshiping God. But that is only a piece of the picture. Selfless followers of Jesus at Freedom Valley Church spend time alone with Jesus as well. Are you spending time alone with Jesus? Are you spending time alone with him? The disciples had to spend time alone with him. Listen, I'm a father of three. I understand that alone time is a precious commodity. Like, 
Like, where do you get it? What is alone time? It's sleeping, right? I'm alone when I'm sleeping. If I'm, if I'm at work, I'm at work with people. If I'm hanging out for fun, I'm probably with a dozen teenagers. Like, love teenagers. How many of them are in here? How much trouble am I gonna be in? I can handle it. They can, they can get on your nerves a little bit. I love you. I love you. But it can be, you know, it can be a bit much sometimes. And we just want some alone time. We just need our alone time, right? Who, who here just, I need some me time. Well, Jesus says, you need some we time. You, you, you do need to take care of yourself. And we're gonna talk about this a lot today. Self-care is an important thing that our society is, is training our young people in. You need to take care of yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, how could you ever take care of others? Take care of yourself. But there is a balance. We, I talk about the pendulum a lot. When culture starts to get something right, they just keep on swinging until they end up in a disorder. Like self-care for the sake of self-care is not self-care, it's selfishness. Hey, you know, I know I just got back from vacation, but I really need a vacation. So I, I'm tired from vacation. So I'm gonna skip church this week and maybe next week. I just need to recover. I need some me time. And like, yeah, I know there's, there's things I could be doing or should be doing, but I just need to rest a little bit more. You know, I need my eight hours, I need that beauty sleep. I need that beauty, you know, I, can you tell I got my beauty sleep this morning? I'm looking great, I just say. We need that. Yes, take care of yourself. But do not take care of yourself at the expense of your relationship with Jesus Christ because that is not self-care, that is selfishness. Self-care is spending time with God. I learned this in Africa in a very painful way on our last missions trip. We were up all hours of the day and night working harder than I feel like I have ever worked except for on other missions trips, working incredibly hard to the point of exhaustion. You feel like you're gonna drop. And then when you're about to go to bed, our leaders told us, hey, who here's feeling tired? Who's feeling tired? And you know, everybody's like, it's not, I'm not feeling, but everyone's feeling tired. And they go, I think we're all feeling tired. So you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna wake up an hour earlier tomorrow for prayer. Does that make any sense to anybody? Hey, you're tired, let's wake up earlier. But that's what we did. When you're tired, wake up earlier and spend some time in prayer. And you know what weirdly happened? I would wake up so exhausted, drained, and grumpy. Who hears a little grumpy when they wake up? Yeah, nobody wants to admit it because the person next to them, but you're like, you're grumpy. <laughs> she is, he, you know what I mean? Like, I would wake up grumpy. But, you know, we're, we're all there in unity, so we spend some time in prayer. God pushed that out. When I was spending time with Jesus, there was no room for that grumpiness, that anger, that exhaustion. And he gave me the energy I needed. Now, that missions lifestyle, it's not sustainable for every single day of the year, but I can wake up a little early and pray every day. That doesn't mean I do because I'm weak. And, and a lot of times I, I choose myself over my savior. But selfless followers spend time alone with God. And when that time is, it matters. You know, Jesus in Luke 5, 16, the Bible tells us that he went alone for a place of prayer. You, you can't say, well, I go to church there. I got it. I, I prayed at this week. No, you need time alone. Jesus found time alone. It also says in Mark 1, that he often woke up early to pray. This is something I've had to transition in my life. When I was young, I'm, a, I'm naturally a night owl. My prayer time was always in the evening before I went to bed. But what I find now is if I start to pray and read my Bible, my Bible becomes the most comfortable pillow. Just, it's just like, oh, it's good. And I fall asleep. 
I, I guess at 32, I've turned the corner. I'm now, as the teenagers officially call me, old, I guess. In their eyes, I certainly am. They're jerks. But now I realize I can't do it at night like I used to. Jesus, he got up early to pray. Maybe we should. I'll talk to teenagers. I'm like, hey, have you spent time in prayer today? They're like, nah, I didn't have time. I had to wake up, go to school. Then I had, to, I had homework, and then I had uh, sports, and then I had my after-school club, and then, you know, dinner, and then my parents made me go, and then I went out with some friends. I just didn't have time. Well, wake up earlier. I can't wake up earlier. You can. Will you? And asking a teenager to wake up early, by the way, is like asking them to cut off their own foot. Like, but you can. Will you? Will you give up your comfort? Will you give up your own comfort? It's selfless to give up your comfort. You know, in, in Mark, it says that the disciples saw Jesus transformed. This is Mark's explanation of what uh, he heard from, from them. Let's hear Luke's explanation of what he heard from them. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with them. In Luke's record, he describes it what is probably more accurate. They climbed the high mountain and they were tired. And they sit around the campfire and they fall asleep. Maybe, maybe they woke up just in time to see the tail end of the transformation, but I believe if they had been up spending that time alone with Jesus, pursuing him in prayer, sitting next to him praying and, and crucifying their flesh, dying to themselves saying, I don't need sleep, I need more of you, Jesus, maybe they would have been transfigured as well. Maybe they would have had Venta white clothes on in that moment. Maybe it would have been all five, uh, six of the men standing there celebrating and worshiping in majesty on that mountaintop. But they fell asleep. They fell asleep. Will we give up our sleep so we can spend time alone with our Savior? Will you give up some sleep? I'm not saying, you know, sleep four hours a night and pray for six hours a day and you'll be good. No, you got to take care of yourself. Keep it balanced. We understand that as a church. But will you give up some sleep? so you can pursue your savior. Wake up a little earlier. Spend a little bit more time. Time with Jesus transforms us. It could have transformed the disciples in that moment. We can be transformers, more than meets the eye. Robots in disguise. Okay. Will we give up the sleep for our savior? Let's see how the rest of the story goes in verse five. Mark 9, 5. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it is wonderful for us to be here. That's like one of those no-duh statements that only Peter can say in scriptures. It's like, duh, yeah, this is a good moment, Peter. And then he says, let us make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's saying, let's stay right here. I'm loving it. We need to be right here. Nowhere else is better than this place right now. Verse 6. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. There's one unifying factor in almost every story of the scriptures when people encounter the full presence of God and the majesty and the glory of God. They're scared. Do you notice that? An angel shows up and it says they were terrified. The, the, the Lord... Um, the leader of the Lord's armies, the leader of heaven's armies shows up. They were afraid. An angel shows up. They were afraid. God shows up, and they were afraid. Selfless faith is scary. When, when you're confronted with God, you realize that, that it's not about me at all. 
When, when the angel of the Lord stands in front of you, you go, oh, it's not about me. I thought I was something great. I am not, I'm not something great. It's not about me. That's a scary place to be. Our nature cries out that I'm special, important, unique, and different. And you are in God's eyes, but it's his, his gaze upon you that makes you special, unique, and different. It's what makes you the crowning jewel of creation, his children. It's the fact that he looks on you with love that makes you special, unique, and different. It makes you so important. But when we're confronted with his majesty, we are afraid, and that is scary. It is scary to be in the presence of a perfect God and go, I am nothing compared to you. Selfless faith is scary faith. It costs us something. Jesus tells us that anyone who tries to hold on to his life will lose it, but anyone who gives up his life for my sake will gain it. It is scary to think what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. I was confronted with this in Ethiopia. I've talked extensively about how my mission trip to Ethiopia was one of the toughest times for me as an individual and as a follower of Jesus. Our safety was challenged on a daily basis. Rocks were thrown at us. We were pushed up against the bus. We were told to just leave. It was scary. And I was confronted with the very real fact that I might lay down my life for Jesus at any moment. And you know what? It was hard, but I went, okay, I'm okay with that. But you know what I'm not okay with, God? I didn't tell my family before I left that I'm fine if I lose my life. I didn't tell them that when I said goodbye, I didn't say, if this is for the last time, we've made the right decision, continue to follow him. I didn't tell my kids that one last time that I would gladly lay down my life for God. I was afraid for them because it was scary to live that kind of selfless faith that I'll lay down my life. And I spent that time in prayer one morning, I think it was the second or third morning of the trip, and I went, God, what if? And I was honest with my fears about my faith to him, and he said, don't you think I would take care of them? Where do you think it would come from? And, and here's, here's the truth of it. I was scared for their financial provision. You know, Jamie wasn't working at the time. I worked here at the church, but, but if I passed the, what, how would they pay the bills? Rent, we needed that check every week, every month for rent. How would we pay? Where would they live? Who'd take care of them? And God said, you think I'd let them starve? I'd take care of them. I love them more than you do. And at that moment, I had to selflessly give up my family for the sake of my savior. And that was scary. We have to be willing to give up whatever it takes to gain something that we can never lose. And then when I had to leave that missions trip, I was afraid because I had moved to a new level of faith in Ethiopia. And I was worried that when I got back to America, it wouldn't be the same. This is, we talked about bringing church camp here, like it's, it's camp, youth camp here at church. This happens every time, every year at camp. There's at least one student who says, I don't wanna go home, I just wanna stay here. Can't we just stay here longer? I wanna stay. And you know what they're saying? I'm worried, I'm scared that if I go home, things won't be the same. I won't have the same presence of God. I won't have the same prayer life. I won't have the same faith pursuit. They're afraid that if they leave, they won't still have God. And I want to be like, don't you know you can take this with you? Peter was scared that he might lose that moment with Jesus. So he says, let's just stay here, Jesus. I never want to feel anything other than this amazing moment on the mountaintop. And I've been there. I'm afraid that if I go from where I am, if I leave where I am, I'll lose the access to God that I've experienced. But Jesus said, faith the size of a mustard seed can move 
mountains. So do you think it could also move mountain tops? You think your selfless faith could take that mountaintop experience and take it with you throughout the rest of your life and your world and your day and your week and your year? You think it could do that? If we just have faith, some selfless faith that says, I can't stay here because I have to take this with me to the rest of the world. I have to show this to my neighbors. I have to show this to my family. I have to tell this to my friends. The world needs to know what I have experienced. Peter was so afraid, he said, we should just stay here. But he was missing the fact that they needed to take it with them off the mountain. That moment wasn't just for them. It was for the rest of the world. It was to actually prepare them for the ministry that was ahead of them, that Jesus would die and they would have to carry the mantle with them. And that moment was sealed by God. That selfless faith was sealed, but, but they had to be willing to give up their comfort to get there, right? They had to climb to the top of the mountain. They had to stay awake. They had to go without sleep. They had to face the hardships. A lot of times, our selfless faith is scary because we're worried we'll lose our comfort. We're worried we'll lose our comfort. Comfortability is a curse in America. It is so easy to just be comfortable with things the way they are. It's one of the reasons I love church camp. We transform everything. I love watching the faces of people who've come here for years and they walk in and it's different and they're like, oh, this looks different. Why are there snowballs on the ceiling? We need to change because if we become comfortable exactly where we are, we won't embrace the individuals that need to be coming, the change that needs to come so that others can come to know him. We need to give up the fact that it's not about us, it's about everyone else. We need to be willing to serve others so that they can come to know God. You know one of the pressing needs of our church right now? There's, there's a lot of things our church needs. God will provide all our needs and many of the ways he provides is through people. Our church needs great greeters. We don't need greeters. Let me be clear. Our church doesn't need greeters. Like, hey, we are desperately, we just need somebody to stand at the door and hold it open. Every one of our doors is a little thing we can flip down and it'll stay open on its own. What we need are great greeters. I've got to visit some amazing churches with some world-class greeters. I'm talking like people who from across the parking lot, they start to pick out that that look that a new person has. And, and if you're new here, I'm, I promise I'm not mocking you if it's your first time with us. Thank you so much for being here. But a new person, they'll walk up to a church and they'll go, oh, let's look at that, everything's. And they've got that, that new person look and they're looking. And then the greeter, they see that from across the parking lot and then they, they get themselves ready. They're like, okay, all right, I got this. And then they see him and they go, hey, what's up, man? My name's Jay. Is this, is this your first time here? Awesome. Well, I'd love to show you around. You know, we've got a kids ministry. Oh, you don't have any kids? That's great. Well, we have free coffee. You want a cup of coffee? Oh, you don't drink coffee. You know what? We got soda and tea. I'd love to buy you a cup. You, 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 want, you want a cup of tea? Okay, I'll grab you a soda, chips, whatever. Hey, that's fine. The service happens in there. It's going to happen in about 15 minutes. You can grab a seat. I think it's going to be a little bit different today. We got like, there's a St. Bernard in the lobby. I don't know if you saw that word. They connect. Church camp is is designed to connect people to church. Do you know that summer is the lowest attended season in every church in America? Church camp is actually designed to help combat that. I want to create something with church camp. Can I share a little vision with you guys? Three years ago when we started this, I, I had a vision for what church camp could be. I would love it if, if next year our decorations, like, like I don't have anything to do with them because everyone else is so much better at them. I want them to invade the, I want them to invade the parking lot. I want like your car, where you park your car to be different. I want people to know we care so much about them that we will create something incredible.
I want people to change their vacation schedules so they don't miss a weekend in August. I want people to go, our church goes all out in August. You got to check it out. I want people excited that summer is coming to an end, and not because summer is over, but because it means church camp is coming. That's what this event is to me. And we've got a long way to go, and I'm excited to get there. I've already got plans for next year, people. Just wait. Like, I'm excited. It's going to be way out there. But I want this event to connect people to Jesus. I remember the first year of church camp. First year of church camp, somebody was walking up and they had that, that look on their eye. And this is actually really hard for me. This is a selfless thing for me. I am not good at talking to strangers. I know you're thinking, yes, you are. No, I am not. Ask my wife. I am horrible at it. I will put my foot in my mouth in 10 seconds flat. It's a talent, I'm telling you. But I saw him and I went, all right, well, they're gonna walk in and they're gonna see things are weird. I gotta be the one to connect with them. And I walk up and I'm like, hey guys, is it your first time here? And they're like, yeah, we're from, uh, and we start talking and I explain everything. I bring them back to kids. I, I tell them, you don't have to drop your son off, but if you want, he's here. And, and, and they start connecting. And three years later, they're helping us out with church camp. And it's, it's their dog in the lobby, barking at people, <laughs> slobbering all over the floor. Anyway. Church camp can connect people in a way other events can't because we're willing to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes. We were here every single day decorating and we've got a church camp carnival and we're gonna do it so that people can connect. We need individuals with that kind of passion trying to connect people. FV Church needs great greeters, individuals who say, I'll, I'll, I'll meet people, I'll shake their hands, I'll get to know them, I'll walk up to the new person, I'll be brave even though it might cost me my comfort. I am uncomfortable every time I talk to somebody. I just am. I love you guys, so I will talk to you. It, I, it's, I have to give up myself. Naturally, I'm an introvert. The only time I'm an extrovert is when you put a microphone in my hand. Every other time, just give me my space. But I'm going to break through that because it costs me my comfort so it can connect people to Jesus. And that's what matters. Our church, we need people to clean. We need security people. We need sound people. But we need all people who are doing it to give of themselves so that others can connect to Jesus. Will you give of yourself so that others? It's scary, it's hard, it's tough, but we need to be willing to do it. We found out about another opportunity for us to reach out into our community a, a while back, and we've always known about it, but we haven't been intentional because it will cost us something to do. Um, and this year we, we began to talk. Do you know every year 700 new individuals move to Gettysburg all on the same day? Gettysburg College campus. 700 incoming freshmen this semester. They're gonna be living in Gettysburg for the next nine months. I've been at Freedom Valley for 10 years and I have met one Gettysburg College student that I can remember. 10 years, every year, 700 students, I have met one. That's, is that 7,000? Am I doing my, my math right? 7,000 people that moved into our community and then moved out without us connecting them to Jesus. That's amazing, and, and we have to do something about it. So we've started the process of talking to one of the resident connectors who actually goes to this church, one of the people who helps people find housing. And, and what we're doing is they do an event on Thursday, and we're going to be there handing out flyers, inviting to church. And then we're actually, we've recruited some individuals who will selflessly give of their time to drive those Gettysburg College students here. We're gonna offer rides and have carpools that are leaving at set times at set locations. So if they wanna to come to our church, there'll be a ride provided. And maybe nobody shows up to that ride sharing program that we're setting up. But here's what they'll know. We want them there. 
they will know our church wants them there. So if hardship happens, if difficulty happens, and maybe they grew up in church and they've run away, they'll know that Freedom Valley wants them there. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do that on Thursday, and a few people have volunteered to help hand out those flyers, and there's, there's maybe some room for a few. We don't wanna flood that whole event, but, but we're gonna give out rides. We're gonna connect with Gettysburg College students. We're gonna go out of our way so that people know we are a church that cares about our community and our people, and we have to do that because we have to be selfless, and here's why. Dion, we're gonna go down to, to where we went last service, Mark 14, 35. Here's why. This is another mountaintop story of Jesus. This is the night before he was betrayed and handed over to be murdered. He went a little further and he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, that the awful hour waiting him might pass by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not my will the ultimate statement of selflessness. The ultimate statement of selflessness. He knew that God could have prevented his own suffering, his own discomfort, his own frustration. But a selfless follower of God does whatever it takes to lead others to him. Selfless followers lead others. Jesus was the ultimate Sherpa you know, there is something different about Jesus. He was the only one who had lived in heaven. He was the only one that knew the way to heaven. He was the only way to heaven. So he gave up his comfortable life to come down off of that mountain so that we could have a way up it. And then he tells us, will you be a Sherpa? Will you carry the load and the burden for someone else? Will you make sure that they're seen safely up the mountaintop? When I was looking into climbing Mount Everest when I was younger, thinking something great of myself, like I could conquer that mountain, I watched a documentary TV series called Everest. It was a creative name. And there was an individual in that first season who climbed Mount Everest with two amputee legs, with two prosthetic legs, just below the knee, climbed to the peak of the mountain on prosthetics, proving that he could do it. The Sherpas led him up and guided him up. But on the way down, something happened. He could no longer wear the prosthetics. The bleeding had gotten too bad and the sores had gotten too bad. And he had to go to his Sherpa and say, I can't go down anymore. And the Sherpa tied him to his back and carried him down off that mountain. We need some Sherpas in this church. Some people who will say, I'll give selflessly so that others, so that others, we used to say around here, and we still do, we church, not me church. Church is not about those of us who are already here. It's for those who are not yet here. We wanna create a space to lead others to him. We wanna create some room so that others are connected. We want some people who will give of themselves so that others can meet Jesus, that will give up their comforts, that will give up their desires, that will give up their identity, that will give up their own image so that the only thing that is visible is their savior. Would you change your own identity for Jesus Christ? I'm no longer what I was, I am a follower of Jesus. That's what he asks. We must give up our own life so that others can gain it. 
are you able to serve? Are you able to follow? Are you able to lead by being selfless? We defined vibrancy two weeks ago and passion last week. This week, I wanted to find selflessness as being willing to give up so that others can gain. Being willing to give up so that others can gain. Some opportunities for you to respond because we need to be a selfless church. Not we should be a selfless church. We need to be a selfless church. Our church will only succeed in reaching the lost if we are waking up early and praying. That means you have a hand in this. You might never hold a microphone. Wake up early and pray. If you will pursue Jesus in your quiet time and in your prayer life, it will be reflected in our services. I guarantee it. Will you wake up early and pray? Will you do something that scares you? Are you willing to have selfless faith even when it's scary? Talking to a stranger about God, connecting with a person in the seat next to you, walking up to someone who has the new person look and saying, is this your first time? Oh, well, you've been coming for years? Don't be afraid, just have the conversation. Just get to know one another. It's selfless, it's selfish to say, it's all about me. It's selfless to talk to others. Will you invite your friends and your neighbors to church. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.